Hi, and welcome back to Strange Proposition. I'm John. Uh, thanks for coming back. This episode, we're going to be reading Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, that starts on page 30 of the big book. And a lot of this uh, is just really great, and it isn't until, I think, even more than halfway through the chapter that the word spiritual even appears. I don't think the word God appears once in this chapter. The The phrase higher power, the phrase higher power are the last two words of the chapter. Um, so there's some stuff to talk about uh, in terms of some of the unsupported claims that are made. But most of this chapter is just excellent in talking not just about step one, but about step two and the definition of alcoholic insanity. So I'm going to, you know, we're going to give the big book its due and just go through it all. And I will uh, stop at a certain point to uh, come back at the text for some of its unsupported spiritual uh, claims. So chapter three, more about alcoholism. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We've tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there have been brief recovery, followed always by a still worse relapse. Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. Despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they are in that class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they will try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone who is showing an ability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are some methods we have tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever, with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. We do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. 
Though there is no way of proving it, we believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while there is yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. Here's one. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he could get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. This case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remained sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who at 55 years found he, just, he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop, as he did, on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it, because none will really want to stop, and hardly, any, hardly one of them, because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired, will find he can win out. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. To be gravely affected, one does not necessarily have to drink a long time, nor take the quantities some of us have. This is particularly true of women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing and are gone beyond recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics are astonished at, the, at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large numbers of potential alcoholics among young people everywhere, but try and get them to see it. And then as a uh, footnote, it says here, true when this book was first published, but a 1998 U.S.-Canada membership survey showed about one-fifth of AAs were 30 and under. And I'll go back to the text at the top of 34. As we look back, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our willpower. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he is a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of success. In the early days of our drinking, we occasionally remained sober for a year or more, becoming serious drinkers again later. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it, this utter inability, this utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. 
How then shall we, keep, uh, shall we help our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us? The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful, but we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable war, world war record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He is an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we had found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had a deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. This is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. I remember I felt irritated that I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. On the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. I had no intention of drinking. I just thought I would get a sandwich. I also had the notion that I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar for I had been going to it for years. I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. He was the threat of, here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense physical and mental suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion or the ability to think straight be called anything else? You may think this is this an extreme case. To us it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences might be. 
Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks he breaks both legs. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work, his wife gets a divorce, and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. He shuts himself up in an asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine, which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? You think our illustration is too ridiculous, but is it? We who have, th- who have been through the ringer have to admit we have substituted alcoholism for jaywalking. The illustra- if we substituted alcoholism for jaywalking, the illustration would fit us exactly. However intelligent we may have been in other respects, where alcohol had been involved, we had been strangely insane. It's strong language, but isn't it true? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of those symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well, after what you have told us, that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people, who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize, to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us at a bitter experience. Let us take another illustration. Before we get into this, I just want to stop. Uh, you know, we've been through the retiree, we've been through Jim, we've been through the jaywalker, and the next and final example is a is a person called Fred. So I just want to stop here to go back to the only references to spirituality thus far in this chapter, and that's on um, page thirty four when it talks about the non spiritual basis. And 35 when it talks about enlarging his spiritual life. And this is interesting because when it says here in 34, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. And then it says, you know, of... Uh, of Jim, he made a beginning. His family was reassembled. He began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And then, of course, he relapses. And there's no, like, th- there's no explication of what exactly that means. What quitting on a on a non spiritual basis means, and what enlarging the spiritual life means. Because for Jim, he's already come in contact with AAs who've carried the message to him and gotten him sober. He's failing to stay sober, they say, because he's not enlarging his spiritual life. But it's no, but there's no explanation of what exactly that means. Does that mean he's not working the steps? Because what's interesting is that throughout this chapter, and you, you've probably heard it at the end of, of the reading I was doing, Bill keeps hammering home the word insanity. 
you know, insanity, insanity. We're really on to step two because it says earlier in this chapter, we, this was step, the first step, you know, admitting powerlessness, admitting that we'll never be normal drinkers again. And now we're into examining what causes us to continue to relapse. And that kind of gets more into step two of, of, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Um, and he's talking about insanity being picking up a drink without any fight, you know, having two parallel uh, cognitive paths, really. One being this insanely trivial uh, excuse and reason to pick up the first drink and the other containing all the information we have about the terrible consequences that lie ahead if we start drinking again. And it's just interesting that they're talking about this and being so vague about what it means to be spiritual because it, it, it reminds so much of in There is a Solution, the last chapter we read last episode, where Carl Jung is saying, you know, on page 27, is saying, um, exceptions to cases, this is to a hopeless alcoholic, exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, Jung, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional arrangement within you. With many individuals, the methods which I have employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. So, that keys up very nicely with Bill's focus on insanity and and all this focus on we're worried about the mental phenomenon at this point. Once you've stopped drinking and sworn off, the issue is are you going to relapse again? And that is a question that centers in the mind, right? Like it says in an earlier chapter, if we could avoid the first drink, all these all these observations we've made about what happens when we drink would be academic and pointless. So if that's what is being talked about here with these very vague um, allusions so far in this chapter, we're reading in this episode more about alcoholism, a non-spiritual basis, enlarging a spiritual life. If we're talking about a Jungian vital spiritual experience, then that matches up quite well with what um, with the emphasis in this chapter so far on sanity and insanity. And... We're gonna get we're gonna get into this more as we take apart Fred's uh, as we take apart Bill's reflection on Fred's story. We're not really gonna take apart Fred's story because he's just being very upfront about what his experience has been. But when Bill gets into trying to shoehorn it into God and spirituality and higher power, that's where we're gonna have to come back to this. But I just wanted to point this out so far that you know if the if we're talking about a jungian vital spiritual experience which is what the big book talks about and there is a solution this this entire psychic change to use silkworth uh language from the doctor's opinion then i we we are to assume we can only assume that jim his failure to enlarge his spiritual life quote unquote is his failure to work the steps is his failure to take the practical program of action necessary to have what jung described as ideas, emotions, and attitudes being cast to one side and a new set of conceptions and motives becoming, beginning to dominate the individual. So I will pick up now uh, as we get into uh, Fred's 
um, into Fred's story. And that's the, uh, the big paragraph on 39 that doesn't even end on 39. So it starts halfway through page 39. Fred is a partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home. He's happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearances, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind, and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. It never occurred to him that perhaps he could, do, he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. And I just want to stop here and say, the only remedy that's been presented so far, other than Bill's ideas in Bill's story about how to meditate and pray, have been these references and with some fleshing out, but not really going into it systematically yet. It does later in the book, and we'll get into that. The remedy has been the practical program of action, and it is administered along upon the altruistic plane of alcoholics who have recovered, carrying the message to other alcoholics. But again, um, Bill is writing about this at this point. Fred's going to speak in his own words in a moment. But I'll get back. I'll just repeat that last uh, sentence to pick up again. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. He was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. We heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other concerns, yet was flat on his back nevertheless. Let him tell you about it. Yeah, now it goes to Fred. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident, that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, for, and for a time, all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks, and I began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day, I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel and leisurely dressed for dinner. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Then I ordered another cocktail. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. 
When I returned to the hotel, it struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed, so I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and of finding a friendly taxicab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been, not, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not thought of the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more, for what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in, these, in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Two of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous came to see me. They grinned, which I didn't like so much, and then asked me if I thought made myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. Then they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had only been a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to, even, to it even if I could. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. We had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly managed, mangled, before they really commence to solve their problems. So let's stop here for a sec, just towards the end of Fred's very compelling story uh, and very identifiable. Uh, he says, they outlined the spiritual answer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had, not, though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow. But the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw lifelong, several lifelong conceptions out of the window. Now, doesn't that really sound like the Jungian definition of the vital spiritual experience? I mean, literally, Jung talks about getting a new set of conceptions and motives which begin to dominate the now recovered alcoholic. And the idea of the spiritual answer in the program of action, the, the fact that he could accept the spiritual answer because that was not hard for him. He'd only been a nominal churchman but had enough familiarity that he had no problem with that. But it was the what he calls, quote, drastic, um, though entirely sensible, was the, the practical program of action that he balked at. And he says that, that 
the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. He just talks about like the 180 his life has done. This is one of the most, in my opinion, sinister aspects of AA and spirituality is the definition of the principles of the recovery program as spiritual. Say, and this poor guy, Fred, doesn't know any better, but he said, and, and we don't know if this comes directly from Fred, although it is quoted um, as if it's being told to, to the authors of the big book to build verbatim. You know, we, we don't know for sure whether every turn of phrase is Fred's alone or whether it is being, you know, brought in through Bill W.'s uh, philosophy and, and perspective. But saying spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Humility, selflessness, altruism, those are not spiritual principles. I, I, I can't, and I know to the people listening to this podcast who are atheists most likely are not going to argue with that and don't need that hammered home, but believers, people of faith, really need to understand that they do not have a monopoly on principles like humility, selflessness, restitution, and altruism. And those are some of the most important principles that emerge through the practical program of action. The new conceptions and motives that Jung talked about coming about as a part of a vital spiritual experience. And of course, Jung isn't, isn't actually describing anything that falls within the category of the simple religious idea. He's describing what happens as a result of working the practical program of action. Those things are not, they, they are spiritual insofar as you know, a Jungian would say they are spiritual, or at least a Jungian would say something which could be translated into English as saying they are spiritual. Or, you know, we don't have to go back and, and relitigate the, the course of therapy sought by the American businessman in Europe, but whether those those sessions were in English, German, or, or maybe French, the two could agree on that, at least we don't know. Um, so just like on a semantic level or, or, or on, a, on a level of vocabulary, you know, shoehorning spiritual into Jung's comments may not totally be actually appropriate or earned. And if it is, then there's this equivocation between what a, what Jung and a psychiatrist would consider spiritual and what a religious person like Bill would consider spiritual or someone from the Oxford groups would consider spiritual or religious. So it's important to watch that, that, that this idea now of spiritual principles you know, as if religion and spirituality can lay claim to the principles that emerge from the practical program of action. Those are not spiritual principles. People who go to church may be, may be um, aiming to become more humble and selfless and um, more disposed to, to clearing away the wreckage of their past, more altruistic. But that doesn't mean that those are spiritual principles, you know, like honesty is not a spiritual principle. It's a principle. And I, I will, and there's just a couple of paragraphs left in this chapter. I'll finish those and I'll have something to say about those as well. So I'm going to pick up now. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, and we're back into the, the big books as the, as the voice here, the bill. So uh, one of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. Quote, what you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. 
As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there's virtually no other solution, unquote. Well, this is pretty interesting because Silkworth, in the doctor's opinion, if we recall from that episode, which would have been the second episode of the podcast, said there is actually help. They're, 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 the, the psychiatric effort has been successful to a considerable degree in producing the entire psychic change needed to recover from alcoholism. And which, as we know now, having read a lot of the good stuff in, in these chapters, of the, in the early chapters of the big book, is not about recovering from the phenomenon of craving that develops once the first drink is taken, but it's about recovering from the mental obsession and the, and the subtle insanity that precedes the first drink. But Silkworth says the, the, the program of alcoholics who've recovered using the Oxford groups or AA, whatever, what have you, is growing so rapidly and has the potential to help thousands of alcoholics, it could mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. So Silkworth is, is not saying that medicine can't save alcoholics of the hopeless variety. He's just saying that it makes a lot more sense to let alcoholics save alcoholics because they can do so rapidly and can reach so many more people than we're able to with our current resources in terms of making the necessary psychiatric effort. And then they go to Jung later, you know, as we were reading back on 27 in, in There's a Solution, who's saying, if you're a hopeless alcoholic, you know, some people can get better, but some people, are, some people can't. And I've, tried, I've been trying with you, this person who uh, that ended up becoming an early member of AA, and, and it's not taking. But I just want to point out this idea of only the divine can help, um, only the spiritual approach. But we talked in the last episode about this ridiculous, um, th- this this r- ridiculous notion that. That but for the grace of God, it says on twenty five, and there's a solution. There would have been many. There would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. This idea that once recovering al- recovered alcoholics started working out the solution on the altruistic plane as well as the spiritual plane, but on the altruistic plane, then things really started to happen. You know, it says on eighteen in. Um, in there is a solution. Highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss this situation without reserve. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. And then in, in all italics, the next paragraph. But the ex-problem drinker who has found the solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So the X factor was not God, was not like the grace of God suddenly kicking in in 1935 for some reason. It had been like set to like go into effect too late, I guess. No, it was alcoholics who had recovered working this out on the altruistic plane. One alcoholic or, or a pair of alcoholics, let's say, reaching another who was sick and suffering. So 
for this psychiatrist who would not pass muster with with uh, Silkworth, who was like the man at Towns, um, this staff member at, at some world renowned hospital that they're relying on to say, you know, apart from divine help, there's no hope for for these for for the alcoholics under our care. Uh, or or the or the kind of alcoholics that honestly we would turn away if we could, or at least this guy, the staff member saying I would turn away if I could because it's too heartbreaking. And that's just not historically what happened. It's not that God suddenly, you know, on the seventh day he rested and then six thousand years or what whatever the biblical timeline is to nineteen thirty five, then he, he through his grace uh, granted recovery from alcoholism to uh to alcoholics. No, it was the Oxford, Bill picking out from the Oxford Group's recovery program the practical program of action that could actually achieve what Jung was trying to achieve with his patient and which he couldn't always do, especially with alcoholics, to do what Silkworth said was necessary to create an entire psychic change and to carry that and win the confidence of an alcoholic by taking this to suffering alcoholics by other alcoholics who had recovered and were sober, that was, that was the trick. That is what, it's, what had changed by 35 when AA started. So, you know, for most cases, there is virtually no other solution. It finishes the, the staff member at the hospital's quote. Um, that's just not, I mean, there's just conflict between the way Bill is presenting the program of recovery in in the in the rosiest terms he can, in the most God favoring and religious and spiritual terms he can, and what actually had happened historically leading up to this point, where there were, you know, a few hundred, a few thousand alcoholics who'd recovered by thirty-nine. So I'm gonna just I'm just gonna finish this read the last two sentences the last few sentences of this chapter and we'll be done. Um, so this is just the big this is just the author summarizing. Once more. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. Except in a rare few cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And I don't need to jump onto the, those last two words, higher power, anymore. There's no more support for that than there is for the support of the spirituality or divine language throughout the rest of this chapter, more about alcoholism, which is otherwise super important to understanding uh, really more step two than step one, because step one, they kind of say this is the first step. And we've had chapters at this point about um, what alcoholism is as a bodily and mentally disease. This is really getting to what, how does relapse happen and what is the recovery from it? And, the, and I will just to foreshadow the recovery from it is not divine help. Uh, it's not spiritual principles. It's, principles that are important to being a better person and it's the help one gets along the altruistic plane another alcohol one alcoholic helping another or a a group of alcoholics helping others that's how what fred calls the drastic practical program gets transmitted and it's that which causes the, the 180 in fred's life not you know some fictitious spiritual entity or God. So I want to thank you uh, all for listening uh, to this episode. And uh, next, 
episode, and it may take more than one episode. We're going to get into we agnostics. It's only uh, fourteen. It's only 13, 13, 14 pages, really, but it is so chocked with bullshit that we're really going to have to take. Like it's going to be a paragraph by paragraph fight, I think. And I, and I hope I hope this is enjoyable for people. It's enjoyable for me. I I really like doing battle with this stuff and making sure that we don't allow the spiritualists and the the believers take recovery away from the people who are sick and suffering from alcoholism but are not sick and suffering from the delusion of God consciousness or spirituality because those people are underserved in recovery in NAA and uh, and that's why I think it's so important to, that we keep doing this and, and keep interrogating the text and fighting for the recovery that's in the 12 steps and making sure we quarantine and, and, and push out all the stuff that people, all, all the hangups AA has that come out of this conservative 1930s Christian culture. Um, so thanks, thanks for listening and have a great day.